When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is Need to Know, real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the U.S., Bryce Zabel. Today's show is loaded with content. We'll be starting off with some thoughts about the war in Ukraine. We'll do some UAP news and updates, and then we'll shift into the core of today's show, which is my co-host Ross Coltart's book, In Plain Sight. Now, I know he's done a lot of interviews about it, but I want to ask him some questions I haven't really heard him get asked about. And in any case, that book really took the UAP world by the lapels last year and gave it a good, strong shake. Myself, I've read Ross's book in three formats now. That would be soft cover, ebook, and then listening to it once on Audible. This leads me to conclude that Ross should probably be interviewing me about his book, but whatever. What say <laughs> you, Roscoe? Let, let me apologize in advance to all of our listeners and to you, Bryce, for my appalling American accents in the uh, Audible edition. I, uh, I, I think I was rather ruthless in taking off Tom DeLong. I, I portrayed him rather unfortunately as a 12-year-old boy getting very, very excited. <laughs> uh, uh, to be honest with you, I thought all the voices were really kind of charming in their own way. And, and if, if we were to have any matchup between your American accent and my Australian, you would still win hands down. So don't, don't apologize too much. <laughs> It's a very grim week, though, my friend, isn't it? My yeah. God, can you yeah, believe yeah. that we're looking at a land war in Europe in the 21st century? I just, I'm just so upset about it. I know. Um, I'm kind of curious uh, about your specific thoughts about that. I've been thinking about it all this week because you've covered foreign wars. You've been in Iraq and, and I believe Afghanistan. You've been these places. Tell us what's going through your mind right now. Look, I, I've got really strong memories of an incident that I covered in uh, Dora, which is a suburb of Baghdad, shortly after the invasion in 2003. And there was a cluster bomb canister that had been dropped by America on a suburban neighborhood in Dora. And these are bombs that have been dropped by the Russians all over towns, cities across Ukraine now. And what we saw there was just, it's too horrendous to talk about. I mean, it, these things devastate civilian communities. Uh, it, it's appalling that they are still being used in warfare. And other weapons like thermobaric weapons, thermobaric bombs that literally suck the oxygen out of the air. Now, these are cruel weapons to use on civilian populations. I mean, I, Vladimir Putin is doing something that I never contemplated we would see in the 21st century. I, I thought us primitive humans were at least beyond that and that we've learned how to settle our differences with negotiation, but we're still primitive apes. You know, I guess that's true. And at the same time, I also had to recoil just on a very visceral level when I heard him talking or at least threatening the possible use of nuclear weapons or at least putting them on a higher alert status. That's just been kind of the... Uh, the third rail of, of war. You just don't talk about that stuff. So it, it kind of frightened me. And I, I don't know how that play on your side. Well, it's clearly an effort to try and stop the Americans and the NATO partners from intervening. Uh, because of course, the one thing that could stop Vladimir Putin would be European and American air power. But of course, the moment that happens, it's every likelihood that we would be involved in a third world war. The terrible thing, Bryce, is, I mean, I'm, I've been reading particularly some British intelligence commentators who are speaking on some of the more um, 
specialized websites, uh, security and risk groups. And uh, they're talking about how this is essentially a third world war already because there's already a cyber war underway. And the risk, I don't think people realize just how dangerous a situation we're in at the moment. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which have got the doomsday clock on their sure. website, for years since the Cold War, it's measured the proximity of nuclear conflagration. And we are at this moment, closer to a nuclear conflagration, to all-out third world war, nuclear war, than at any other time in Cold War history. We're 100 seconds to midnight. And there's just, you know, the, the risk of, say, for example, what happens if a, a Polish jet strays across into the Ukraine border and uh, it's engaged with by the Russians and shot down. Then there's an obligation on NATO to respond. And then I, I think the risk of escalation is enormous. We are in uncharted territory and in incredibly dangerous times. Yeah, and I guess uh, I guess for yourself and myself, we feel like we've grown up in dangerous times. I mean, I remember uh, my family had a, a, a shelter, a basement that we turned into a fallout shelter. A fat lot of good it would have done. But then, you know, here I am uh, many years later living in Los Angeles, which not only is a target of uh, North Korea if they decide to lob one over here, but would clearly be one of the first targets in any any Russian uh, and American conflagration. So we do live in very troubling times. And I find myself, you know, to relate it back to our uh, particular show here, talking about the UAP issue, I, I kind of wonder uh, if, if, if the evidence is that there is another intelligence, a non-human intelligence interacting with us, observing us, watching us, I, I do really kind of wonder what they might be thinking. And, and I don't think it's it's time for that usual joke where why would they even bother with us? We're such a, you know, violent, whatever. I mean, clearly they've been interested in us for a while and they've been interested in our nuclear weapons. If you look back on, on many of the incidents that have happened. So as they look at this right now, I think as I sort of read some of the things that people are talking about in Twitter and about this and so forth and articles, there are, there's one school of thought that says, well, they would shut it down. Well, maybe. And then there's well, another school. I will hope they do. Yeah, I hope I they do, my friend. I, I, I would, that would be I mean, great. I, I'm, in, I I'm in no doubt. I mean, I, I, think, yeah. I think you and I are agreed that the, the implications of what the American government has officially conceded and the statements from so many senior officials make it very, very clear that there is, there is an advanced, technologically advanced civilization that's operating on this planet. That, that that is capable of technology that we do not yet comprehend. That, that somehow frankly, cares about our nuclear they, capability. Yeah, yeah, and they are. They, they apparently seem to be concerned. The evidence overwhelmingly, the data points that they're looking at our nuclear weapons. So let me and ask by you golly, this. I really do hope they intervene. Uh, well, yeah, I, I'm not counting on that, and I don't, I don't plan on it. I also think it's interesting that June 25th report from last year said basically that the phenomenon was real. It said that these uh, objects uh, were uh, not likely made in America, and it kind of left the door open a little bit that, well, maybe they're Russian or Chinese. Do the Russians have any drones that are effective uh, currently operating in uh, Ukraine? And if they had drones that worked like these UAP, wouldn't they already have rolled those out? And wouldn't we be thinking about rolling ours out if any either side had that kind of advanced tech? Oh, absolutely, mate. That is the nail on the head. I mean, the, if the, the only drones that appear to be operating successfully inside the Ukraine at the moment are the Turkish drones that have been provided to the Ukrainians. They've been obliterating convoys of Russian armor. Uh, it's very gratifying to see, frankly. I mean, I feel sorry for the poor Russian boys underneath it who are unwittingly being dragged into this war by this lunatic. But um, yeah, I mean, frankly, we've been told that it's possible that the technology that we're seeing in the, uh, the in the atmosphere is uh, possibly Russian, possibly Chinese drones. I'm seeing no evidence that Russia no. has any such technology, and they don't no. seem to be even able to resupply a convoy at the moment. I mean, they are suffering enormous setbacks in their efforts to get to Kiev. I only hope that continues, and uh, frankly... Uh, they, they don't even seem willing to deploy their air force because they seem nervous about the Stinger missiles that the uh, allies have given to the Ukrainians. So I, sh I um, sure wish. Yeah, that I don't see any evidence of drones. 
I sure wish this wasn't happening. It would make it a lot easier uh, to talk about the UAP issue because you could say, well, we seem to have our act together. Now maybe we can think about talking to whoever it is that's out there. But we clearly don't have our act together, and that's a little troubling. Uh, you know, let's move. Let's move forward. We we always like to do in our first segment some UAP updates and and news. And uh, one of the ones I just wanted to touch on because it's just such an in incredible developing story is the uh, the man who was going to take over as the inspector. He's been nominated by Biden to be the inspector general for the Defense Department. This is a man named Robert Storch. He was testifying at his his hearing and Senator Kristen Gillibrand just excoriated the guy, scored one of the most incredible responses. I just have to read this for people. First, she asked him, you know, is it your position that as you know, that you would be looking into this as we've directed? And he professed twice that he really didn't know much about UAP. And yeah, he would, he would get around to it after he was confirmed. All right. He, she basically asked twice. He basically said, I'll get around to it after I'm confirmed twice. And she said, well, and this is a quote, since you aren't familiar, can you please familiarize yourself with this issue and respond to these questions in writing before your confirmation, please? I just do I thought, your homework. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, the man had a two word answer. It was kind of shocked. And then he said, uh, yes, ma'am. And I thought, <laughs> what a great moment in history. That is a top moment yep. in UAP history for me. Well, I mean, I just think it's, I, frankly, I'll, I'll say it. I think it's appalling that somebody was coming in for a confirmation hearing to be involved in such a crucial oversight role. And they had no bloody idea that the biggest story of all time has been unfolding inside the portfolio that they're administering. So frankly, I think a lot of bureaucrats are going to have to pull their heads in and start applying their noses to the wheel and actually understand this issue. Which is I mean, great. I'm really gratified, actually, Bryce, because yeah. just this week, the um, the other big story was the Canadian government's released an enormous amount, 20 years worth of UFO reports. I think it was about 500 plus reports, 300 pages, sightings from commercial pilots, soldiers, and police officers. And it's a great story by Vice News, Daniel Otis, who's a great digger in Canada. He's been digging into this story. And uh, there's some really interesting reports among them. The uh, uh, As recently as last year, there was a Canadian military flight that spotted a bright green flying object that flew into a cloud and then disappeared over eastern Canada. Um, numerous sightings by uh, commercial pilots and uh, military pilots in Canada. And I think what's really interesting that the theme that Daniel's hit on is that there's a definite reluctance to report stuff. But even if you accept that reluctance, you know, it, it's quite clear people have been so concerned about what they saw that they've come out and actually uh, reported it. And there's a there's one particular report I wanted to talk about that Please uh, do. Back in 20, 2018, in the Bay of Fundy, Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, um, there was a, a, a light, yellow, steady and hovering high above the Atlantic Ocean. And it was correlated by radar from NORAD and um, the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, there were three primary radar hits that correlated to the time and location of the sighting. And so... This is really interesting because this is where the Shag Harbour incident happened yes. in 1967. And it really does beg the question, are these objects more underwater than we realise? Boy, the Shag Harbour incident really does ask that question because that's what it was all about. People reported seeing it uh, in going into the water, and that's pretty crazy stuff. Um, I, this yeah. is a great article. There are lots of great, you know, uh, kudos to the Canadians for uh, at least having a Freedom of Information Act that that actually is working quite well right now and getting these reports out. And just to underline it for people, it's on Vice News and the name of the. Uh, reporters Daniel Otis. And what's really interesting, you can get a flavor of some of the actual documents and you can just see how these are meticulously gathered over time. And the fact there's so many of them is very interesting. And uh, also you can find the links to read more of them, which if you're if you're into that kind of thing, it's a great, great thing. Go ahead. And crucially, Bryce, the thing that I find fascinating is the Canadian Air Force was one of the Air Force 
in the in the Five Eyes Alliance that was basically saying, no, no, these aren't a national security issue. They're not raising any issues of concern. That was the public position of the Canadian, American, British and Australian Air Force and the US Air Force for, for decades. And these documents show, they underline what you and I both know, that it's just a blatant lie. They've yeah. been monitoring this phenomena for years, for decades, and they have been concerned about it because by definition, any incursion of an unknown object into the airspace of any country, any sovereign nation, is a breach of that airspace and a threat to national security. Uh, yeah, and to, to say so emphatically over the years that there's nothing to see here and no, no reason to be worried has not been very forthcoming. And those days may be ending if certain senators uh, like Gillibrand and Rubio and, the, and many of the others uh, who have come out on this topic uh, have their way. They're going to insist. And, and you know, just to wrap up this segment, uh, there's also a lot of news. I mean, Lou Elizondo never seems to fail to go on a podcast without making podcast news. And he's done it again, of course, because he's saying that things are, are going very, very quickly in D.C. And it kind of goes with a, a Liberation Times article that I, I read last week, where they were basically saying that the people like Gillibrand who are behaving the way that she just did with the IG nominee are doing so because, you know, the public, we got the nine page report. They got an extra some 68 pages, I think, 64 pages, and they've been briefed and shown the good stuff. And as I always like to say, they came out with their hair on fire on this thing and they want to get some. Well, I've been privileged. Yeah, I've been privileged to speak to some of the staffers and one or two of the congressmen or senators who've basically heard these briefings. And I, I, I can tell you they are. They were rattled by what they heard. They've seen some of these videos. And I can't wait if and when it happens for the public to see the same. Yeah, I think I think it is game changing. Uh, is the game completely changed yet? No, but it, it does appear to be changing. Um, so that's you know that's kind of the week in review kind of thing for us. Let's let's move ahead. One thing we also like to do is we like to add corrections and additions when they're needed. And you know it's interesting. You told a great story about Daniel Sheehan a few year, a few episodes back, uh, the lawyer who actually saw a crash retrieval while he was working for the Carter administration. And then we've also talked about Lou Elizondo so many times. I just thought we should point out to people that unless I'm mistaken, Daniel Sheehan is also Lou Elizondo's attorney right now. Is that right? That's right. And actually, I, sh I should acknowledge one thing as well. Somebody picked me up on something. I'd confused two previous podcasts I'd heard of John Ramirez, the former CIA analyst. And I'd said that John was told certain things in a skiff that he was talking about in the podcast that I was listening to. It was actually a conversation with senior CIA colleagues in a hotel room, uh, not, a, not an official briefing given in a classified read-in situation inside a skiff. And I'm, I'm happy to clarify that as well. I, I think that's a good thing that we're doing, and I like to keep doing it. All right, so listen, we're going to wrap up our, our first segment here. And uh, when we come back, boy, do we have a surprise. It's that guy on the other side of the screen, only this time I get to ask him questions, make him a guest on his own show, which I think ought to be a lot of fun for us. So when we come back, we'll be getting into some of those specifics about Ross's book, In Plain Sight, and some of how he actually did acquire some of that information and do some of those interviews. Need to Know continues in a moment. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
Well, you know, investigative reporting is really a skill set, and there are lots of moving parts when it comes to doing it right. So in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about how it works, how Ross did it in his book, In Plain Sight, how he cultivated some of those sources and what kind of key sources he had and what they told him. Uh, but, you know, Ross, uh, I, I, I did. I have listened to so much of you recently. I, 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 I told you before the show, I'm starting to dream in your voice. And it's, it's a little frightening to me, but I'm going to continue for because I've listened to these interviews you've done and, and your book and all that. Um, but I think the thing that I'd like to clear up most right now is, you know, I don't want any barnacles of mythology growing up around, you know, how you came to do this, were you a dead skeptic and then you took years off. And what's the story? What was your uh, relationship to the UAP slash UFO topic when you decided to write this book and what made you decide to write it? Look, like a lot of boys, I guess, as a, as a little kid, I was fascinated. I mean, the 1960s when I was growing up was a period where there was a lot of interest in UFOs. I mean, uh, people talked about it. Uh, people wrote about it. There were sightings all the time where I was living in New Zealand. When I was 16 years old, there was the so-called Kaikoura UFO incident that was very dramatic because there was 16 millimetre millimeter film taken by an Australian uh, reporter and his New Zealand cameraman. Uh, the, the reporter was uh, Quentin Fogarty and the cameraman was Davy Crockett. And they, uh, they shot some extraordinary vision from a cargo plane on the north coast of the South Island of New Zealand. And I only found out later when I was at university, I met people who were working in air traffic control at Wellington Airport. And I later on tracked those people down. And one of them, John Cordy, uh, who's still alive today, lovely old geezer, he, um, he confirmed to me that contrary to what the New Zealand Air Force said officially very, very shortly after the incident, which is the, I was, I actually accepted the explanation at the time, the official explanation at the time that this was all rubbish, that, that, that essentially what the uh, pilot and what the two reporters on board had seen was just reflections of squid boat lights off clouds. And if it wasn't that, it was Venus. But uh, what was really interesting was to talk to this air traffic controller who told me, and he still tells me to this day, he's adamant that what he saw was solid. And he was actually talking to the pilot on radio as they were seeing the object from the front of the plane, moving to the back of the plane, coming up towards where the plane was at 14,000 feet and moving around the aircraft. And this was being tracked on Wellington radar. And what was really interesting was there was quite clearly a cover-up by the New Zealand Air Force that to this day has never been adequately explained. And when you go through the New Zealand archives, and which are available online, and look at the report incident, into the incident, it's just appalling. It was just a complete whitewash. And by complete chance, when I came to Australia, I got to know Quentin Fogarty, who only died sadly last year. And he was investigating this case all his life. And I guess that twigged my interest greatly. But Bryce, as you'd know, one of the things that happens in journalism, one of the first things that happens, a lot of people think journos get told not to do certain stories, that there are certain stories that you're not allowed to do. That's actually not true, except for one issue. And that one issue is UFOs. Yeah. I've been intrigued all the way through my career how editors, executive producers of TV programs fairly consistently have treated the subject of UFOs, UAPs with ridicule and derision and with a, a stigma and a taboo. They're frightened of it. And I was always, throughout my career, I was pitching stories because I can remember I was on the desk of the Sydney Morning Herald on a Sunday and people were calling. There was a woman calling saying she'd seen a, a flying saucer. She was hanging out her washing in Parramatta, which is a, a suburb in Sydney. And uh, she said she had a photograph of it. And I very naively said to the editor when he came in at about four o'clock, I said, oh, sir, there's a, there's a woman mm. in Parramatta who says that she's got a, a UFO picture. And he looked at me with disdain and said, Ross, we don't do UFO stories. And I remember thinking, why? Why not? Because all through my career, I've done 35 years now, plus in investigative journalism and TV news and newspapers and radio. And all through my career, I've met people, military pilots, 
senior people in the Air Force, people in intelligence, people in defence, people in air accident investigations, people working in government, who've told me they're aware of these objects, they've seen these objects, and that they can't explain them. So, And I, 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 it, it perplexed me. I just want to clarify, by the way, um, we get told a lot of reasons they're you didn't see what you saw. Maybe it was Venus. It might have been a weather balloon. But squid boat lights is really a great Australian invention. I love the squid boat light uh, explanation. Listen, I just want to clarify this. So it would be inappropriate to say that you were a hardcore skeptic. You had heard about the topic. You had even covered it in some ways, had thought it was a worthy story, and you wanted to chase it. Well, I'll be honest, when the, when the New Zealand story about Kaikoura first surfaced, I was immediately accepting. I guess I was a bit more credulous back then. I immediately accepted the Air Force explanation. And I, I, I'm not proud of it, to be perfectly honest, because I, I didn't analyse it enough. And then I, I was working for the New Zealand Herald newspaper uh, in the years after that story. And I can remember people were really angry that there had been, in their words, a cover-up about Kaikoura. And I remember I treated them with the disdain that we were taught to treat them as journalists. Right. I used to laugh about UFO stories. And, and when people rang up saying that they'd had experiences with UFOs, which did happen very, very often, sadly, normally at a full moon, um, uh, I treated it with disrespect. And I didn't accept what people were telling me was true. And now I feel kind of ashamed of that because I've I've looked in the archives and I've seen what the New Zealand government and the Australian government and the American, British, French sure. governments knew and didn't reveal. You know, um, that's all a, a good explanation. Uh, the other thing I noticed reading your book uh, these multiple times is there is some parody with the Australian stories and the American stories, which is as it should be because we're dealing with a global phenomena. And uh, so it's very, very interesting to see that. But my question was, when you started to write this book, because your book has uh, has such a insight and is telling the story literally through many stories that we haven't heard here in the United States, some of these Australian stories, were you writing the book originally for the Australian market and then it got larger on you or were you trying to educate the American market? Look, I have a confession to make. I actually started out thinking of the international story first. I was really interested in the history of America and, and I'd, I'd read a lot of the books. I'd read Timothy Good's, I think, excellent books on the history. And then uh, my publisher, they said to me, they said, look, Ross, we, we want to know a bit more about Australia. And I was only sort of halfway through at that stage. And I look, I, I didn't know how much there was in the Australian archives. And so I went down to Canberra, which is about an hour from where I live. And I sat down in the National Archives in Canberra and started going through the Air Force investigation files into UFOs, unidentified air objects. And uh, I was gobsmacked because there's a history there, a rich history. And there was a moment for me that was a real turning point. There's a mate of mine here in Australia, Bill Chalker, who's probably Australia's preeminent UFO, UAP researcher. And Bill told me about a Defence Department scientist called Harry Turner, who'd written a report in the early 1970s requesting the Australian government to consider essentially a UFO investigation team, uh, you know, kind of like a Project Blue Book in Australia. And he pushed really hard to his defence commanders, basically arguing that, quote, it was quite clear that there'd been a cover-up of the UFO issue in America, that the US Air Force knew a lot more than it was letting on. And this was a Defence Department senior scientist who, as it turned out, when I went through the files, O.H. Turner, Harry Turner, was O.H. Turner, who back in the 1950s and the 1960s was a young physicist who had witnessed UFOs and investigated them over the nuclear weapons test sites in South Australia at places called Maralinga and Woomera, which were super secret sites, a bit like our Groom Lake Area 51, where we were collaborating with the US to assist in the testing of ICBM missile technology and nuclear missiles. And indeed, during those tests, there was a plethora of weird sightings of disc-shaped lenticular craft 
whatever it was, it wasn't just taking an active interest in what was happening in America. It was taking a very close interest in nuclear weapons testing all around the world, and including here in Australia. That's what made it so fascinating to read. Uh, it filled in gaps. It showed similarities. Uh, it The narrative one realized was if it wasn't happening here, it was happening there. It just it didn't like go away. It was being practiced everywhere. Uh, let me just jump into the journalism part of this a little deeper here, though. Um, obviously, as you said, you've had a, a, a long career and you've won some awards as an investigative journalist, and it's pretty cool that that's all true. What kind of things did you learn? What tactics, what methodology did you apply that had worked on other stories that was particularly useful to you when trying to break open the UAP storyline? One of the things I learned very early on was to protect sources. Uh, I I realized there'd been a moment I was working for Australia's top public affairs show called Four Corners, uh, which is like our PBS frontline equivalent in Australia. And um, I was an investigative reporter on that show, and I was investigating a story that related to the Australian Air Force. And because we were a high-profile program, we were being given very good access by very senior officers in the Australian Air Force. And we were filming with them, spending days with them, and sitting in the officers' mess at the end of the day, having a beer. And on one of those days, I was with two very, very senior officers. And one of them said to me, why, why, why don't you chaps do stories about UFOs? And I, I just left. I, I freely admit, I just said, well, because... Most of them are bullshit, aren't they? And he went, no, they're not. No. And then in the course of this very, very weird evening, we, we drank a few beers and, and he, he introduced me to pilots who were coming through the mess. And a lot of them were fighter pilots. A lot of them were um, transport or uh, surveillance aircraft pilots. Every single one of the people that he introduced me to had a story about anomalous objects. And I said to them, why don't you report them? And some of them had, in fact. And when I went through the Australian archives, I could actually find some of the reports. And uh, what, what interested me was that I realised we as media, we need to protect these people because for them, the thing that was concerning them, the first thing they asked me was, you're not going to report my name, are you? You're not, you're not going to say who I am. And I'd go, no, no, of course not. I'm just ch I'm just chatting to you. You know, this is one of your commanding officers. You know, feel free. Sure. You can talk to me off the record. And they were all saying to me, look, there's a stigma associated with this. You know, but, we don't like talking about it publicly. But but seriously, if you protect us as sources, we'll tell you what we know. But and I by golly, that, they did. I think that's one of your uh, the issues that I want to hear a little bit more about. Here's the, the thing. Yes, I get protecting your sources. And uh, that's what an investigative reporter has to do, or you don't have any sources for very long. However, you know, you did, you are able to name certain sources. Nat Kobitz was an excellent source for you. And you talked about some other people, but also in your book, in terms of protecting the sources, you had to give people names like the spaceman and, and cranium. <laughs> and, you know, you gave, you gave people some names and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, obviously Woodward and Bernstein had to do that with Deep Throat. And yet that was used against them in many cases. People would say, well, how do we really know? I mean, they're, they're quoting this guy named Deep Throat. Who is he? What do we really know about the guy? Turned out he was uh, high up in the FBI at the time, but that's another story. Does it hurt when these people don't want to go on the record? And do you, at least after you gain their confidence, work hard to get them to go on the record? And do you use these names as a last resort? It does. And I wish I could persuade more of these people to go on the record. What, what's been really interesting in the last few months since the UAP task force report was tabled in the Congress, one of the things I've been asking the people that I engage with, especially people in the US, is would you be prepared, if you were asked, to volunteer information to a congressional hearing? Would you give evidence? And they've said, firstly, yes, but only if I was released from the terms of my security oath. Because a lot of people have told me they know things, but they are bound by their security oath that they've sworn to the US Defense Department to essentially lie 
to deceive. Uh, I was amused just recently, um, Lou uh, Elizondo, who I admire greatly, by the way, but he did say in one podcast recently that um, he wasn't allowed to lie. But there is one exception. If you are a person who's aware of a waived, unacknowledged special access program, you're obliged to lie. You, right. you have to conceal the existence of that SAP. It's a secret that is so vital to US national security that you have to lie about it. And I've spoken to people who've told me that they are in that position, but they want to testify. So I only hope that people like Senator Kristen Gillibrand, whose picture I should really have on my wall behind me here because she's done such a phenomenal job in, in pushing this issue and making bureaucrats realize that they have to be accountable. I just hope that the Congress, when the report comes in towards the end of this year, recognises the need to facilitate people to be allowed to give evidence under oath with a protection from their security oaths. I totally agree. Um, by the way, uh, people that have followed us regularly during our first seven episodes know that we haven't done guests. We try to keep it short, punchy, and and give you the news you need and, and kick it around fast and furious. But if we do have a first guest... I'm going to vote for Senator Gillibrand, and I would think that would be a, a terrific uh, reason to break that policy, and we'd let her go as long as she wanted if we, she wanted to talk about UAP, because she's in the center of the storm right now. Okay, look, we're going to wrap but up also, this but, but just yeah, one, yeah. One, thing, one thing I just want to emphasize, there's votes for politicians in backing this yeah. issue, and you and I know that as well. Yes, of course. It's, it's a popular issue. So we're going to wrap up here in this segment. we got one final segment. And when we come back, the thing I want to focus on with Ross is that uh, he spent a lot of time doing the research. He traveled the distance. He had a journey and he reached a few conclusions. I want to ask him about some of those conclusions because they inform the work that we're doing together on Need to Know. Stay with us. We're back in a moment because you need to know. In a way, I think Ross's strength has been that he's been able to be a surrogate for a lot of people in, in this journey that he's taken them on in his book and, and let people sort of see some of what he's been seeing and, and go through that process. The average person, in my view, doesn't have the time to really do these deep dives. And in fact, that's probably one of the reasons we're doing Need to Know. And it was certainly one of the reasons why I think, Ross, your book was so popular this year or last year and this year, because people thought, well, he's treating my time respectfully and he's done the work that I would have liked to have seen. So, you know, as we begin here, I noticed that, you, you know, if, if, you, if I were to describe the structure of your book, the first half felt like almost like a historical review to me, which I thought was very useful because a lot of people don't know the history of the topic. And then I felt like the investigative part kind of kicked in in the second half. And it you didn't really sort of lay out that final chapter that said, okay, here's my conclusions. In fact, your final chapter was uh, was titled something about Salvatore, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Salvatore Pais. Is that correct? Why did you end on that guy? What was it about that that felt like it saw, it pulled it all together for you? In many ways, Bryce, writing the book has been a case for me of stating the legitimacy of the mystery. Because we've been told for 75 years, 77 years, that this is not an issue that we should take seriously, that we should treat it with ridicule and treat it with taboo. So I started the book, the historical part of the book, to underline what I think fantastic people like uh, Rick Dolan and his book, uh, and you, in fact, with After, Dis After Disclosure as well, and uh, Timothy Good with his books, there's been a solid skein of evidence revealed by witness statements and, crucially, official documents that underline there is evidence, quote, in plain sight, that, that I felt was an absolute revelation to me. I, I wasn't aware of the, the, the incredible detail that supports the legitimacy that whatever this is, this mystery, this phenomenon is real. So I, that's why I structured it the way I structured it. I wanted the, the reader to come into the, the book and go, okay, this isn't an airy fairy tinfoil hat 
loony sort of subject matter. This is verified. There are so many reports in history that underline the legitimacy of this. And then throughout my investigation, I guess I tried to treat it like a road trip because it's been as much of a discovery and an uncovering for me as I hope it is for the reader that's reading the book. You know, I'm taking them on a journey. And so the reason I used the Salvatore Pei uh, story, he's a Navy scientist who the US Navy, on behalf of him, filed patents making extraordinary claims that they have operable force field generator technology, transmedium vehicles, fusion generators. And this series of quite extraordinary patent applications were made by the US Navy in public patents just a few years ago. And I was intrigued. I was absolutely fascinated that the US Navy felt able to assert and swear and testify to the patent office that these patents are operable. They made a representation that, as a lawyer myself, I know that if that representation is false, then the patent is invalid. So to me, what I was doing was underlining that I do think the United States government has now officially acknowledged it knows more than it's letting on. And at the heart of what my book was concluding is that fact that there is a mystery here that I know now the United States government is sitting on, and for the moment at least, it's concealing. Well, in fact, that I was going to say that the one thing that is extremely clear from your book, and you say it in the final chapter, and this is a quote, I have no doubt at all that the U.S. government is hiding extraordinary secrets about the phenomenon. And I, I think that... Um, that kind of goes in line with what I've been telling people. They go, well, you know, can you prove UFOs are real? I go, well, I can't prove that they're they're extraterrestrial or anything, but I can, I can, I think prove that they're real, but I can certainly prove the cover-up. I think the cover-up is is the first rail of proof. Yep, I agree with you. And I, I think the issue with the whole Roswell case, for example, on which you'd note I've stayed agnostic. I, I haven't reached a definitive conclusion about Roswell. But the one thing I'm certain about is if this really was a weather balloon or some kind of Cold War spy balloon, the level of cover-up by the US Air Force that continues today is completely unjustified and it's disproportionate to the information that they were trying to conceal or that they purport to have been trying to conceal. And this is a consistent pattern that, frankly, the one thing we can be sure of is that whatever the secret is, they're trying to hide something that they haven't yet revealed. And I keep on coming back to telling moments in recent history where, for example, President Obama actually told Jimmy Kimmel when he was asked about aliens. In all seriousness, he said, I can't talk about that. What was it? And why the hell aren't mainstream media asking in the United mm. States? Why can't President Obama, if, if, if aliens are all BS, if it's all nonsense, why can't the president talk about it? Pretty good why can't question. he just dismissively say, look, I've been briefed on this and there's just nothing to it? They can't say that anymore. Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, a few weeks before the end of his term, told his junior, Don Jr., that there were things he knew about Roswell that he couldn't talk about. Why? I mean, why can't we talk about it? What is it they're still concealing? I want to go back and quote you again to yourself. That's one of my favorite things to do. So um, you said at the end, I strongly suspect from what my own sources tell me, that technology not made by human hands has been recovered. And this is the part that got me, not only by the US, but by Russia and China. So my question to you is, if that's what you concluded, do you think we're in the middle of some kind of alien space tech race that has been going on under cover, uh, that, but that is the equivalent to the space race we had in the 50s and 60s? Yes, I do. I actually do think that. I've been told by two United States intelligence sources that the Russians have definitely retrieved a craft. And the, the word that was used in relation to China was they've retrieved technology, possibly archaeological. Mm. Now, 
I don't really care if my friends in mainstream media titter or you know resort to ridicule. But before they do, they should really look at what's been said by senior officials that have suddenly, as you and I noted in our last podcast, you know, there's been a huge sea change in the way that official Washington is talking about this issue. There are people, creditable people, like Christopher Mellon, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence, Lou Elizondo, the former head of the UFO program inside USDI, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defence, Intelligence and Security, um, Dr. Eric Davis, uh, Dr. Hal Putoff, these are creditable people who are intelligent, well-respected, making the assertion that they believe the United States is in possession of non-human technology. And some of them have implied or asserted that there is indeed an ongoing back engineering and reverse engineering program. Now, that's what my source, Nat Kovitz, went on the record mm -hmm. with before he died and told me on the record that as the former director of science and technology for the US Navy, he'd been read into a reverse engineering program involving multiple retrieved non-human spacecraft. Now, there comes a time when the question has to be asked, when do we start saying, okay, the, the media, the mainstream media needs to start jumping on the bandwagon and asking hard questions about this? Because there's been one feeble attempt at a Pentagon press conference just not long ago, actually. And what I found very, very, very interesting was that the uh, the Pentagon spokesman, when they were asked, you know, does the United States have retrieved alien spacecraft? It's one of the first times that question's been asked. You know what the spokesman did? He avoided the question. Yeah. He didn't answer it. That, if, if there is I, one, I just, that's a pretty easy no. Yeah. And so... I mean, I, I just think it's time. I, I know from talking to sources that either a hell of a lot of people in defense, intelligence, and private aerospace are lying, or the United States okay. government has been lied to. I want to jump to, you know, by the way, if you do read Ross's book, don't jump to the end and read the last page. You'll get all the good stuff on the <laughs> That's last That's what page. I do. So don't do I that. always read the last page of the that. book first. But yeah. One thing that I want to quote is you did say too many, because you've got all these sources. Not every source you talk to has made it in your book, and there's been many sources that have talked to you since your book. So you state too many insiders have dropped too many hints for me not to think that there is a reckoning coming. So as we wrap this segment up and this, this podcast up, what do you think is a reckoning? What does reckoning mean when it comes to UAP, UFO reality? Okay, my take on this, Bryce, is very simple. I think that we are only going to see a very controlled narrative that misleadingly suggests that the US has just discovered it will make a concession, I suspect, that it has just discovered something that makes them think that there is non-human life on this planet or that has been visiting this planet. I don't think the US wants to admit its longer history. I don't think it ever wants to admit that it's got crash retrievals, that it's been running a back engineering program. And I think what they're trying to do, and frankly, I would do the same thing. I think what they're trying to do is fence that off because it's so important to the national security of the United States the technology that they're deriving from that and that they're seeking to employ from that. And it's still, I understand, an active investigation, active research. They don't want to talk about it. So I think what we're going to see later this year is a concession that, yes, as we've told you, this mystery is real. We now believe, I think they might actually concede this. You know, there is a non-human intelligence that's engaging with humanity. We do think that this is a technology and we do think that it's intelligently controlled. And we don't think that it's Russian or Chinese. But I think that might be affected by what's happening in the Ukraine. I think we're moving into such a dangerous period on this planet. You know, the technology and the weaponry held by the United States is going to be incredibly important in the next 12 months. We've got the possibility of war with China. We've got the looming threat in the Ukraine. And then there's also that sleeping issue of whether or not Iran's going to be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. You know, you know, we are in such dangerous times, and I think all of that is going to affect whether or not the public gets told anything really of substance 
As uh, Brian Williams used to always say on his uh, 11th hour show, it's a lot. And uh, it is a lot. I want to end with uh, a personal question. Uh, on this journey of yours, you, you have a family, you have kids, you have a wife. Uh, as they've seen you become further and further involved in this investigation, how have they reacted? What do they think about what you are doing with your, with your energy and with your time? They've been incredibly supportive. I mean, I, I, I take my hat off to them. They've been very open-minded and very, very supportive. I think they're nervous because, you know, I'm a, I'm a mainstream journalist with some reputation and they're worried that it, you know, originally they might have been worried that it was damaging my credibility. But I think everybody in my family have just been incredibly supportive because they've basically seen that what I'm talking about has evidence. They've heard me off the record, talking to sources. They've they've heard me talking to people in the intelligence community. One of my sure. daughters laughed the other day, and she said, "Oh, is that your is that your spy friend, Daddy?" And uh, you know, <laughs> it's nice because they're aware that I'm talking to a wide range of different people who are happy to talk to me off the record. And what's interesting is this has happened as well with my friends, the people who used to treat with disdain and ridicule the idea that there are things called UFOs or UAPs. They're now coming around because they're reading the reports that are now starting to dribble sure. into the mainstream media. And they're, they're seeing, they've watched my documentary, uh, The UFO Phenomenon, which is on the Seven Spotlight YouTube site. And I think they've realized that there are people of reputation that are behind the claims that I'm making. And all I'm doing really is what a journalist should do, citing the evidence and following the leads. You know, I, I, I thank you for that honest answer about that. Uh, I, I hope your family uh, feels uh, confident enough to actually listen to your podcast once in a while. Uh, let me know about that. Listen, I enjoyed prepping for this particular show because it allowed me a chance to revisit it. I did uh, review your book when it first came out on Trail of the Saucers. Um, and it was a fast read and it was a fast, uh, it was what they call a hot take. And so it was really interesting for me, knowing you as a person, uh, working with you professionally to read it again. And I have to say, uh, I'm speaking to the people listening to this or watching this. It's a hell of a read. And it's not just a hell of a read because it's, um, it's got all this information in it. It's a hell of a read because it's very personal. It's kind of funny sometimes, and it's it's kind of charming, and it's kind of real. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I started by saying I have uh, read the book as an ebook, as a soft cover book, and as an audio book. And I guess Ross, if you put it out as an NFT, I'm going to have to read it again. But uh, <laughs> listen, I, I really enjoyed this, and I look forward to uh, talking to you about new new matters in UAP coming forward in the future. Thanks for the opportunity, Bryce. It's weird being interviewed by you, but uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed it very, very much. And I thought you asked some great questions. Well, I'll tell you, folks, we'll see you all soon. Remember, if you want to know how to find the podcast or how to find the video version, it's a one-stop shop. You go to needtoknow.today, needtoknow.today. So that's it for now. Uh, we're done for today. Remember, we can handle the truth. People get ready. It's all out there in plain sight.